I often speak with my hands, so I have to make sure that it's not always doing that. Um, the Saints from Bristol do send their regards. I had a text this morning from a few that were saying, say hello to them. Rich Plant, specifically. I don't know who plays golf with them or anything like that, so. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 20. I will lean into the prayers that have been prayed. Thank you, Brother Tim. And we'll start with reading the word of God. So now hear you saints, the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though righteous? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes. I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered? that you have done this thing. Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Uh, besides, uh, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants, gave them to Abraham, and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. 
Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. I mess up often. I was saved 41 years ago. 41 years ago. I'm 49 now. I was, so I was saved 41 years ago. I was baptized when I was 13. Um, and I've been preaching fairly consistently for about 30 years. And I still mess up. Some of the same mistakes that I've done when I was eight. And let me make it even harder. Because when I say I mess up, it sounds like, a, a, like, a, like I've tripped. You know, like I made a mistake. I sin often. If it's not out in public, it's in here or in here. I'm not sure if any of you are in that same position. We'll, we'll assume that maybe some of you might be in that same position. But it's a sad and depressing fact, right? That God's people still sin. Um, and often doing the same things over and over again. So when we're getting here to Genesis chapter 20, it's probably not surprising that we have a story of Abraham sinning again. We have a story of God's people sinning again. And it's probably a story that sounds very familiar to one you heard already in Genesis chapter 12, where there was a lot of the same elements of the story. There are some real differences, though, in this story. Uh, doctors have this term that they say they call a differential diagnosis. It came up a lot during COVID, where you looked at the symptoms that a person has, and you don't assume that those symptoms are uh, uh, the same sickness. For example, you would look at a scratchy throat and a fever and coughing, and those two symptoms can be present in someone who has a flu, a cold, or COVID. Uh, but if they have diarrhea and vomiting, that's eh, maybe closer to something else. If they have a rash, it's neither a flu or COVID might be infection. Stuff like that. Differential diagnosis. So when you're looking at this passage at Genesis chapter 20, it's real easy, especially when you're going through your Bible reading in a year and you're on January 20th or so and you get to Genesis chapter 20 and you go, wait, didn't I read this already? And you sort of skim it and ignore the details. Ignore the details. And we also forget that Genesis chapter 20 didn't fall from the sky like manna into our North American laps. It actually was likely, likely read to uh, the, that first generation of Israelites who was going into the promised land. So if you remember, there's that initial generation that came out of the land of Egypt and they died in the wilderness because they refused to go into the promised land. You remember that, right? This is old news. Uh, and then there's that second generation who was going to go into the promised land. And there was Moses already telling them the law and introducing them to God. And it was possible that that was that first group who actually got to hear the story of Genesis. It's possible. Sanctified imagination if you want. But they would hear this story and they hear a story here of 
God's people making the same mistakes again. Does that sound like their own situation? As they're sitting right there at the, in the plains of Moab, ready to go into the promised land, does it possibly sound like their own situation? That here we are, and we might make the same mistakes over again, even though we're the people of God. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go through this passage, and I'm going to examine it, it uh, in three parts. Um, we're going to see um, our worst problem, our worst problem. We're also going to see uh, our really uh, our most, most perfect, best, uh, always trustworthy solution. So our worst problem, the most trustworthy solution, and then our ultimate salvation. We're going to see those three things. So let's start off with the worst problem. Like I've been saying, Abraham sins again. And when we look at this chapter, and we're going to start looking at some of these verses closely, you see the amount of things that Abraham does wrong in this chapter, it's mind-blowing. So look at um, verse 2. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now, it's, it's true. We're going to get to that. It's true that she's his half-sister. But he's still saying this. And there comes a point when you've been married this long and the promises that you've gotten, Abraham, are you still toting around this story, telling people she's my sister? So he lies. And there's some clear lessons there for God's people, right? Don't lie. Right? That's clear, right? Um, look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. He's self-righteous about this lie. So uh, he's, uh, he's encountered with this story. And then he says in verse 12, besides... She actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So, like, that's self-justifying. Look, like, I wasn't really lying. I mean, when you look at it and you squint in a sort of way, I mean, I was actually telling the truth, you know? So, yeah, it's okay, right? And don't we all do this sort of thing? Like, don't we find ourselves, like, uh, twisting things to justify ourselves? Uh, oh, the amount of exemptions we try to look for around April 14th, right before tax time. I wonder what I can find out there. How much can I claim? I don't know. Well, obviously, being self-righteous is also something that's not good. But look at verse 11. Look what else he does. This is speaking to Abimelech. He says, I thought, surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me. Right away, we see he was prejudiced. He goes into a new area. He looks at the people. Ooh, they look a little different. They are probably not good people. Clearly unbelievers. Probably also based on how they look, how that guy just looked at me. Yeah, they, they want to kill me. That's kind of messed up. Now, there's also clearly lessons in scripture about being prejudiced and about judging motives. Um, but also, I mean, um, very cowardly that he uh, he's also cowardly. Look at look at verse thirteen. Um, he tells Sarah, "So uh, this is the kindness which you will show me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother." Now here's the thing: when you read Genesis chapter twelve and you saw the story in Genesis chapter twelve of him saying, "Oh, she's my sister," it almost gave the impression that it was the scary situation of going to Egypt that triggered the lie. But if we actually look at this verse again, 
Look at this verse again. He says, it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. You see how far back this is? They came up with this plan way back when he was leaving dad's house. Before he even hit Egypt. He was talking to Sarah as they're leaving. You know what? We're going out into the wide world. I'm the man of the house now. I think we need to uh, come up with a plan to protect me. This is what we'll do. You're going to say you're my sister. So that's, he, this is how far back he came up with. Very cowardly. Very cowardly. But not only that. Um, look at this. He, he, he goes and blames his wife. He blames his wife. He says uh, earlier when he says um, the bit where he says um, there's no fear of God in this place in verse 11. Uh, they will kill me because of my wife. Now, back then, uh, back earlier in, in Genesis chapter 12, we find out that his wife was hot. So very likely he was thinking, oh, and he says it in that text. These people are going to think that she's hot and they're going to take her from me. Um, and Pharaoh, the, his, uh, his troops, they do see her and she goes, ah, she's all right. And they do take her when they find out she, she's his sister. He did the same thing here. Now, in this passage, we never hear anything about Sarah being gorgeous or anything. Maybe she is. But she's 99. I don't know many 99-year-olds who are hot, but I don't know many 70-year-olds and 69-year-olds that are Actually, no, there's quite a few nowadays. There's a lot of, they do a lot of good work. So, <laughs> so we see that he blamed his wife, but not only that, look at this. He blames God. Look at verse 13 again. It came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. There's nothing here that he was like, I was obedient to God's call to go out to this land that I didn't know. No, nothing about that. No ownership. He's blaming God. So there's no ownership here. And then the whole passage we see he even defiles the marriage bed, not by him doing an action, but by him getting his, allowing his wife to be taken. Look at 20, uh, verse 2. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now here, what it's saying is that he took her to bring her into his harem, to become part of the family, to become one of his wives. Now it could be because Abraham was rich. So when you see a rich guy back in that day, you marry the sister so that you get part of the family, and now you have a relationship. But um, it could also be that maybe she was gorgeous. Who knows? But he took her to marry her. Unlike in Genesis chapter 12, when you read Genesis chapter 12, and I'm sure you're going to go read it later um, when you have nothing to do, you're like, let me spot check and fact check that dude. In Genesis chapter 12, Pharaoh does indeed marry her. He even calls Sarah his wife. So in this chapter, he, uh, Abraham, again, is allowing the marriage bed to be defiled. And throughout the entire thing, he's doubting God because he's coming up with all these plans. All of these things are bad. All of these things are bad. All of these things are bad. And there's plenty of verses throughout Scripture of why you shouldn't be doing these things. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't be self-righteous. You shouldn't be prejudiced. You shouldn't be cowardly. It's throughout Scripture. It's an Old Testament. It's a New Testament. It's throughout. But that's not what makes this passage so, like, shocking. That's not it. Because this chapter here, Genesis chapter 20, it doesn't stand alone. So it, we can make the mistake that says, oh, okay, Genesis chapter 12, there was a story of Abraham saying she's my sister. 
Genesis chapter 20, another story of Abraham saying that's uh, my sister. And then later on, you'll see another story of Jacob saying about his wife, she's my sister. A lot of three stories, they're all the same, but they have differences. But this story, this story here, divinely inspired by God to Moses to gather the materials and put these things down, puts this story right here, right after Genesis 18 and 19. Why is that important? Oh, okay, now I'm making you think about last week, or Genesis 18 and 19. That was a story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Oh, yeah, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember that story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but how did that story start off? It started off, keep your fingers in Genesis chapter 20, go back to Genesis chapter 18, um, and you're not gonna, we're not going to read all this stuff. We're not going to read all this stuff because you did this already. Uh, but you can skim through, starting in verse 1, and you start skimming through, and you see, oh, wait, this is when the Lord appeared to the, at the Oaks of Mamre to Abraham, and where Abraham then tells Sarah, we have guests. Uh, could you prepare something real quick? Uh, go kill an animal. Let's <laughs> strip it down. Let's cook it up. All that stuff. Oh, wait, this is the same chapter where Abraham is being told that they're going to have a child again. Okay, oh, oh wait, this is a chapter where Sarah is in the tent and she's hearing this and laughs. You remember it? You starting to remember that part of the story? She laughs that God says that, that Sarah is going to get pregnant. Am I going to give pleasure to my husband by bringing forth a child at this part of my life? Ha! Okay. This age of women, we don't get pregnant. And God, do you remember the part of the story? God hears the laugh. And he says, oh, wait a second. Look, look, at, look at 18, chapter 18, verse 14. Actually, let's start in verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am sold? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Do you see that? Sarah will have a son. When? This time next year. All right, this is very different now from what happens in Genesis chapter 12. If you remember Genesis chapter 12, they enter the promised land. They're there, and then like they're like maybe 10 minutes, there's a famine. So you can sort of understand somebody early in their life with God that they hit a rough patch and they fall into the same patterns that they've had before in Genesis chapter 12. That was a bad situation. And in Genesis then, uh, going forward, we see God making promises. Oh, I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you all blessings. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. A lot of stuff looking forward. But only, well, there was one mention of time that God actually mentions to Abraham. He's like, there's going to be a time when your people are not going to enter into the land. They have to wait like 400 years to get in, but finally they'll get in. That's the only marker of time until this point in Genesis 18. And in this point in Genesis 18, the situation couldn't have been any better than ever before. Because in this point, God is saying, hey, listen, the promises I made you of having a kid, it's happening in one year. He gives them a time marker and a stamp and a promise. And if you've been reading Genesis so far, you see that throughout this 
book up to this point, you should already be convinced that what God says happens, even if it's impossible. It goes back all the way to Genesis chapter one. There's darkness. There's a spirit of God over the face of the deep. What's going to happen? There's nothing happening there. It's darkness. There's nothing. God speaks and light. He says, let there be light and light happens. God speaks. There's never been any rains. God speaks and brings the waters from the heaven. God is constantly speaking and things are happening in Genesis. So when he says at this point in Genesis 18, look, one year, Sarah's going to have this child. That means that when we get to Genesis 20, she hasn't had the child yet. That doesn't happen in Genesis chapter 121. Abraham is in the best possible situation. Best possible situation. Why do I say that? Because that means that God's promise is so sure that at this point in his life, Abraham is, for all intents and purposes, invincible. And so is Sarah. Invincible. Now, that sounds like superhero stuff, right? But if God is the one who's saying, I'm going to do this with Sarah, this means that no matter what, Sarah is going to be alive in one year. Abraham is going to have that pleasure of having that child. They're going to be fine which makes Genesis 20 all the more puzzling. Another connection between these two chapters. If you start, if you're wondering, you're like, okay, Ray, Ray, I'm starting to see there's something here to this idea that this chapter is possibly connected to this Genesis 18 and 19, and that's what makes this chapter all the worse. The other thing that stands out in Genesis chapter 18, do you remember then how the story proceeds with um, Abraham interceding for Sodom? Because God is coming down and he says, am I going to keep this from Abraham? Am I going to keep this stuff from Abraham? What I'm planning to do with Sodom? Um, And then he decides to tell him. He tells him because I'm going to make him a great nation. He's going to be a blessing. And then he tells him, um, I'm going, sending these guys down. They're going to be wiping out the city. And then in verse 22 and verse 23, Abraham comes near and says, This is Abraham at his best. He's in the best possible situation, absolute best. Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You see that? Abraham saying that? He's functioning as a person who is blessed by God. Oh, how holy. You know, that nearness to God. He can actually stand before God, intercede for a nation and stand before God and ask God, God, are you the type of God who will slay the righteous with the wicked? But we're not in Genesis 18 and 19. We're in Genesis 20. Look at Genesis 20. This exact phrase, almost exact, comes up once again. Comes up once again, but this time from Abimelech. Look at verse 4. Abimelech had not come near Sarah, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Right there. Even though righteous. It's the same word, Sadiq, righteous. So these two chapters, chapter 20 is standing right next to chapter 18 and 19, showing this amazing uh, foil. You, you remember English class? English class foils? Foil is when you take two things and you put them against each other so that they stand out against each other because they're opposite almost. So like how you would, um, when a, a guy is going to go buy a diamond to propose to his fiancée, he goes to the diamond shop. And they take a little tiny diamond that's really bright and shiny and they put it on dark velvet so that you see the striking 
brilliance of the diamond. Oh, how it stands out against that darkness. So what's happening in this chapter is that these two chapters are being put together. And Abraham, who has been very righteous, he has been very good. He's almost invincible. He's basically invincible. He was interceding on behalf of the nations. And here, he's not interceding. Abimelech has to speak for himself. And Abraham, like I said, is in the best possible situation. Genesis chapter 21, he's going to survive this no matter what. So here's a lesson. Here's a lesson, our worst problem. Here's the lesson that we're seeing from this. And this is a lesson also for the people of God, maybe even the plains of Moab, that the situations that the people can often think, you know, it's our situations. We sin because of bad situations. We, we mess up and we make mistakes because these bad situations happen. If we were in the best possible situation, if you put me in the most righteous robes, if you gave me the, just the right amount of money so I didn't have to worry about it, if you put me in the perfect home, in the right marriage, if, you, if, oh, if we're fully equipped to enter into God's promises, the people in the plains of Moab might say, then we wouldn't make the mistakes of our fathers. We wouldn't sin in that way. And this text says, nope, you will sin. It's not your situation. Your worst problem is not your situation. It's not your bank account. It's not your job. It's not the, oh, I married the wrong guy. He's such a jerk. He wouldn't make, if I had married somebody better, I wouldn't be so angry. It's not it. It's not your bratty kids. It's not the fact that you don't have kids. It's not the fact that you're single. None of those things are the things that makes you a sinner. Our worst situation, our worst problem is not our situation. It's us. It's us. For we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. There is not one. Quite the lesson for the people of God to hear on the plains of Moab. It's not your situation, second generation of Israelites. You God's people are going into the promised land. The promised land is right around the corner. You are in the best possible situation. God has promised that you're going to enter into this land. You're going to conquer this land. But don't forget, you are your own worst enemy. And it's the lesson for us as well here in 2023, right? We are our own worst problem. Oh, COVID really changed the situations, please. Honestly. You know what? If we weren't locked at home for two years, three years, and people and the kids weren't locked up, then it wouldn't be as bad as they are now. Well, maybe, or really, maybe just being at home allowed that pressure cooker to show you what you're really like. Sorry, just being honest, right? How many times during those years of being locked at home, you found yourself blowing up and saying, thinking to yourself if you work, oh, if I could just be in the office again. Oh, my goodness. And then before that, we were all speaking about how, oh, if it wasn't for the office, if I could just be home. But this chapter also shows us our most, most reliable, our perfect, our, our best solution. Look at this, uh, look at, look at this chapter. Uh, so going back to the text. So here's God. He, um, uh, 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 here's not God. Here's uh, God actually coming to Abimelech in a dream at night. Look at verse three. He warns Abimelech, behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken. 
for she's married. You see, God actually approaches Abimelech and speaks to him. But that's not the only thing God did. Look down at the end of the chapter, verse 18. Look at the end of the chapter. The Lord had closed fast all the wounds of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So what happened? That God is so faithful to Sarah and to Abraham that immediately when Abimelech took Sarah into the house, wombs were closed. Now, that means that there had to be at least some amount of time for people to realize, oh, there's something going on because there's nothing going on. Right. So there's something that happened that people started realizing that. But that's not the only thing that happened. If you look at verse 17, it says uh, after it says Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maid so that they bore children. If you're reading this, that means that not only did something happen to the women, that their wombs were closed, something happened to Abimelech that he couldn't do anything about closing the deal with the marriage. He was either sick or something. So God did that immediately upon taking Sarah. Now that should have clued them in. Uh, there's something weird going on. Quinky dink? I don't know. Anyway, we'll see. Maybe time will pass. And then God speaks to Abraham. Not to Abraham, to Abimelech. And tells him in a dream, you're a dead man. You're ruined because of the woman you took. Now, Abimelech defends himself, and he, he says, uh, well, they, we're righteous. Uh, we're, we're basically blameless, but we're righteous. And didn't the guy actually say she's my sister? And then she said, he's my brother in the integrity of my heart. And in my innocence of hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, verse 6, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Look, the thing that we're seeing here is that God is our trustworthy, our most perfect, our most reliable solution. Because here's what he's doing. God's already proved throughout Genesis that he's the answer. When there's darkness, he's able to bring light. When a man kills his brother, he's able to point out who is the murderer and put, take him out, uh, send him out of the way. When the world fills up with sin and it looks like it's impossible that the world can be like this, God sends the flood, wipes out humanity, and saves a remnant. God is able to do and act and solve those problems throughout Genesis, throughout Genesis. But he goes even further. He does more than what people think is possible. So what we're seeing in this chapter is not only is God protecting his people, he's protecting Sarah that Abimelech is getting sick, but we see here that Abimelech himself is not allowed to do this because God himself is the one that didn't let Abimelech touch her. He's doing more than what is possibly uh, in mind of the mind of humans. Think about back to Genesis chapter 18 for a second. Genesis chapter 18. Um, if you remember Abraham, when Abraham was interceding to God before the nations, and he's asking God, um, are you, would you slay the nation if there's 50 people who are righteous? God said, no, I won't do that. Abraham gets all the way down to 10 people, right? Uh, no, I wouldn't do that. But Abraham stops. He stops. 
So if we're thinking in pure human transactional terms, well, God is faithful. He said that he wouldn't destroy the city for uh, if 10 people were in it. So um, let's hope that there's 10 people in it. Fingers crossed. And that was probably Abraham's thinking. <sighs> 10. Managing expectations. What we find out is that God doesn't destroy the city with even one righteous person. What does he do with that one righteous person? And then family? He takes them out of the city and then destroys the city. God is able to do and act faithfully beyond what we can possibly imagine. What can we can even fathom and think, oh, will God do that? No, 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 no. God is God. He does what he wants, and yet he's trustworthy. He's reliable. He is the best, reliable, most faithful solution to our problems. Constantly. So much so, like, I mean, look at how this chapter keeps going here. He says in verse 7, telling Abimelech, Restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. If you don't restore her, know that you will surely die, and all who are yours. Now, if we were only looking at this as the story of Abraham, we would be thinking, oh, it's about Abraham's sin. It's, there he goes working. But here we're seeing is that God is so such a reliable a solution to man's problems, such a faithful solver of our situation that God is orchestrating events, not only for the good of Abraham, he's orchestrating events even for the good of Abimelech. Here's Abimelech at the edge of death. Now, the death sentence that's being brought here is not because you've only taken uh, Abraham's wife. It's because you've taken a married woman. That's what he's saying there. He, he tells her, he's a, look, look at verse uh, three. Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is the mother of promise? Nope. Because the promise seed will come from her? Nope. She's married. That's how serious it is. And Abimelech would have been in the habit of doing this sort of thing anyway. He could have gotten somebody else's wife, who maybe she was a hot lady and... Her husband is also a half-brother and says, she's my sister. It could have been another situation. But in this situation, it happens with Abimelech. And wouldn't you know, look in verse 7. He says, check it out. Restore the man's wife, for this man is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. He's doing beyond what Abimelech could even think is possible. Not only am I going to protect your life, guess what? Just happens to happen just a coincidence, the man's wife actually speaks on my behalf. He speaks on my behalf for encouraging people, for consoling people, for exhorting people and correcting them. He speaks on my behalf, and he also intercedes for people to me. Isn't that great? You can go speak to him. So God is acting in a way that's way beyond people can possibly imagine. And the lesson for the children of Moab, on the, the children of Israel on the plains of Moab, is also clear. Wait a second. Here our forefathers thought when they were going into the promised land, they thought they had to do it on their own steam. They thought that they had to carve out that land on their own power. And they ignored the faithful aspect of God where he says, 
No, I will send my angel before you. I'm going to do this work. So when their situation, their parents, they still remember, they still remember maybe when they were five or six year old, there they are waiting, waiting from, for dad uh, to, to, to come back saying that, that uh, uh, we conquered the land even though they refused to go in the first time because of giants, but now they went in even though God told them not to go in and there they are waiting and they can see the little dots in the horizon that's approaching. Is that dad? Is he running? He's running away from Canaan towards us? And these people running, running as fast as their hairy legs can take them, running into the wilderness, not going into the promised land, because they thought they could do it on their own. And there's this children of Israelites, these on the plains of Moab, that second generation hearing, oh, we are our own worst problem, but we're not the ones who solve our problem. Our faithful solution, the, the solution that always works, is God himself. And Paul says something like this in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, he says, Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. God is faithful. What a lesson for those people. The salvation is not within them. It's outside of them, and it's in God. And it's, in fact, our ultimate salvation. It's provided through God himself. It's provided through the man who speaks for God. Look at verse 17. After all this, Abraham, completely flawed. He's a flawed prophet. He speaks on behalf of God. We said, saw that in verse 7. In verse 17, Abraham prays to God, and God healed Abimelech. So Abraham, the man provided by God, Heals, uh, uh, he prays, he intercedes, and God heals. And this passage, this passage here in Genesis chapter 20, what we're seeing for the first time. Now, there's this, this little rule that you can look at. It's not necessarily a rule. It's something that it's to look at, to scratch your head, and to go, this has got to be important. It's the, the, um, the rule of first mention. The rule of first mention. This is passage here is the first time in the Hebrew scriptures that it's mentioned. The word is mentioned prophet. The first time that it ever comes up right here. There's another prophet that comes up. So Moses, we find out that Moses is a prophet. We find that out later. And Moses actually speaks on behalf of God. But he is just as flawed as Abraham. He's just as flawed. So do you remember Moses? Uh, uh, um, there he is speaking on behalf of God. Oh, really good situation. And then that, those, if you're living with these people for 40 years and they're just constantly thick-headed, and at one point there they are complaining about water. When they see that God has been providing for them for all this time and Moses goes up to the rock and he takes his staff and he strikes the rock after God tells him to speak to the rock. And he says, shall we bring you water from this rock, you rebels? not allowed to go into the promised land because of that. 
And then even later on in his career, when the forces, the forces are over there fighting and they're making their way, and one side, one part of the camp says, um, "We don't want to cross into the land and take our uh, inheritance there. We want to be on this side of the land and take our inheritance here. We're going to fight." And Moses flips his lid again. Oh, are you doing the same thing as your parents? And they're like, "Oh no, hold on, Moses. I know you're old right now, what now? But chill out. We actually want to." fight and lead the forces we want to go into the promised land we just want this piece of land out here to put our kids and cattle but we're going to come in moses was a flawed prophet abraham was a flawed prophet but moses prophetically writes there's going to come a prophet after me who's just like me in that he speaks on the behalf of god but he's got to do something more because you see, if God is the ultimate solution and he speaks of this prophet, it can't be another flawed human who is the person who speaks perfectly on God's behalf, representing God and interceding on his behalf. It's not possible. It needs to be someone even greater. And then around Deuteronomy 32, we see that there wasn't a prophet that had risen in the land like Moses since that time and even since the time of the writing of Deuteronomy at that verse that was written there. When did that prophet finally show up? That's right, Jesus. You remember a woman at the well, a flawed woman, a woman who has been doing the same sins over and over and over again, trying to change her situation, and then finally deciding, I'm giving up on marriage altogether. This last person I'm going to win, I'm going to, I'm going to be with. I'm not going to marry him. I'm just going to be with him because maybe marriage is the situation that is the problem. And she gets into a conversation with a man at a well. And this conversation, she realizes as she's having this conversation, I believe that you're a prophet. Now, we read in our books of Moses that there was a prophet to come. And the Lord Jesus is showing, I'm the one who's to come. And then we find out in Hebrews 1.1 that in times past, God spoke in many ways, in different manners. He spoke through the prophets and the forefathers. Do you remember that, Hebrews 1.1? But in these last days, he has spoken to us clearly, perfectly, through his Son. So finally, our ultimate salvation is, in fact, through God being faithful, he provides his son as the prophet who is to come. Not a flawed human like Abraham, not a flawed human like Moses. He got, spoke perfectly through his son, and his son says things like, come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the lesson here from this chapter, this lessons that we're seeing here, we're seeing that our sin, our own worst problem is ourselves, not our situation. Our best solution is indeed God. He's the faithful solution. And our ultimate salvation comes through who God has provided, his prophet. And those are the lessons that the children of Israel would see. But then for us, we see clearly we see it clearly on this side of the cross. God's ultimate faithful salvation for his people is the provision of his son, the prophet who was to come.
what does this mean for us today in 2013? Because when we read this story, we read this story and we, we could fall into the trap of just saying, you know, lying's bad, uh, cheating's bad and all this. But when you start seeing that and you start seeing it in the, in the texture of the redemptive timeline, that you start seeing of where it lies and what's the, the lesson that it teaches all the people of God and how it ties to Christ, the lesson for us should be clear for any who are here who are not believers my goodness you are still stuck in your own worst problem you are still in sin if you haven't put your trust in god as the only one who can faithfully deal with your worst problem you're sinning yourself you are doomed run to who god has provided his son There is salvation in no other name under heaven, but in his. If you are here, though, as a believer, many of you likely are believers. You could take the moral lessons, of course, that there is. (laughs) Don't underestimate your sin. There is no situation in your life that you can say on this side of glory to say, oh, I don't sin anymore. I don't deal with those problems anymore. Sin will always take you by surprise. And sometimes not even by surprise, almost expected. And then you might pat yourself on the back. It's because I'm Hispanic, Italian, Indian, whatever. You could come up with ever any label. But no, no, your own worst situation is still yourself. It's why Paul can write in Romans chapter 7, seeing this battle happening in the members. It's why Paul can later on write and say that I am the chiefest of sinners, even though he's writing things like Galatians and Ephesians. Chief of sinners, don't underestimate your sin, believers. And don't underestimate the fact that God is indeed faithful and he does provide an intercessor on your behalf who is seated on the right hand of the Father, the Son, in whose image you are being conformed into day by day. And yet we have to fix our eyes on him who's seated on the right hand of the Father so that we can continue to be molded by him. But God does more than we could possibly ask and think. He even pours his Holy Spirit within us so that you are being conformed into the image of the Son day by day. But don't take that as saying there, therefore I don't sin. No, you will mess up, but wrestle with it and let God do his work. And for you who are are young believers, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean in age, although it could be, Young believers, let me tell you, this is a lesson that the children of Israelite were receiving on the plains of Moab. They didn't have the crystal clear message of Christ and the cross and the resurrection from the grave and the fact of the Holy Spirit being poured on his people. They didn't need to have those messages. They didn't know that yet, but these principles were there. I'm encouraging you, young believers, dig into what the scripture is saying. When you're reading Genesis, don't read it as a science textbook or as mere moral lessons. Read it, get into it, think about it, and pair it up with things like Ephesians and Romans so that you start to see what it is to means to live in the gospel and seeing those lessons from Christ right here in Genesis. You know what? Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. He taught very young believers something interesting. They were there scratching their head. Man, our situation just changed. We thought he was going to be the Messiah. And then what did the resurrected Jesus do? He took them through Moses, the books of Moses, Genesis, and showed them all the things about himself. 
So I'm encouraging you, young believers, dig into Scripture. So I'm so happy, uh, Assembly, that you guys are digging through Genesis. So happy, thoroughly enjoyable. And I thank you for the time that you allowed me to share these things with you. Let's pray together. Father God, we do confess that we so often fall short. We often sin and we embrace our sin, revel in it, enjoying it, and then writing it off as a mere peccadillo. Self-righteously defending ourselves like Abraham. You understand our frame and our weakness. You alone are faithful. You are great God. You have condescended by sending your son to come speak perfectly on your behalf, speaking perfectly, offering salvation to all men of every tongue, tribe, and nation so that we can indeed be saved. And we, you don't only seek to save us from uh, our sin, you seek to save us from our complete mentality that you're tearing down these walls and fortresses in our mind with the good news. So we thank you for the lesson that we see here in Genesis chapter 20, that you provide the solution to our most deepest need in your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray through this week that you continue to teach us and mold us Remind us of the lessons from Genesis chapter 20 and motivate us to dig deeper into the word, to read in Genesis 21 and to start seeing how you fulfill your promises and how you change your people. Motivate us, we pray. And we know that you will because we know that we are all together being perfected and being formed into the full stature of the head who is Christ Jesus. So we ask for protection as we go home. We ask for encouragement as we fellowship with one another. We thank you for this day and we praise you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.